This podcast was recorded on Thursday, March 2nd at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Fake News Corporation. You guys are going to be out of work soon. We're going to make sure you're out of work. Out. Out on the street. Out on the street. Yep. You'll be out of work soon. CBC's Fake News. You want the truth out of the news. Oh, these guys are all, and you're not going to get any more government money. No more. It's going to be cut off. Yeah, take that to your bosses. I don't actually work for CBC. Nope. Who, who do you work for? I write for the Huffington Post. The Huffington Post, another liberal media station. Well, that was part of my welcome this week at the Conservative Party leadership debate in Edmonton. On stage, there were jabs, there were cheers, there were boos, and there was a whole lot of disagreement about the future of the Conservative Party. I have been talking about this serious issue of immigration since the beginning of the campaign. Other candidates on this stage are now twisting themselves into pretzels to talk about it as well. In the reform days, they called us extremist racist party. It took us almost, almost a decade to fight that level between Jason Kenny, myself, and everybody else. You're a really smart woman. You got 22 letters behind you, but but you're thank you, 18. But your campaign is a train wreck. What's happening inside the Conservative Party? Whether it's leadership contender Kelly Leach's call to screen all newcomers for so-called Canadian values, or a majority of Tory MPs deciding they can't support a motion condemning Islamophobia because they have a problem with the word Islamophobia, we're wondering what's behind the sudden change in tone. Should we be worried about Trumpism, as, as you're hinting at in the rant coming north of the border? Oh, absolutely. Look, the parallels are so strong between the leadership race of the Conservative Party and the Republicans. Kevin O'Leary has made it official. I am not a racist. I am not a person who's out groping other individuals. Who are they wooing and who are they speaking for? And does this appeal to populists mark a shift in the party's direction? My name is Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up the Huffington Post Canada's political podcast. In this episode, I'll speak with Reform Party leader Preston Manning, Conservative leadership contender Michael Chong, and Mount Royal University's Bruce Foster. But first, I want to introduce you to Ryan Maloney. Ryan is HuffPost Canada's senior political editor. He's my sounding board, and he's one of the voices you'll hear often in this podcast. Hello, Ryan. Hi, Althea. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. A bit nervous about this. I wanted to have you on so you could tell our listeners why we decided to do this. Oh, geez. I mean, uh, you, I think, demanded it. Um, that was a big part of it. Um, I'm just at your service here. So, uh, But really, we just wanted to reach people in a different way. Podcasts are really interesting. Way to keep the conversation going um, as people go about their lives. Riding the subway is when I am often uh, listening to these things or doing dishes. So uh, we would like to put you and put us and put great politics stories uh, everywhere that we possibly can. What stories do you want to tell? I think we like to tell stories that we feel aren't being covered enough, stories that are going to become a bigger deal and that people need to pay attention to, um, stories that are different, that are fun, and uh, that are important to Canadians. Why did we call it follow-up? I think we like the idea of sort of circling back, taking a second to revisit something that was just said, to pull on that string a little bit and to see what else is there. We like the idea of 
um, not just letting something stand, not just letting a message just sit out there, but actually challenging, which I know you love to do. We decided to focus this episode on the Conservative Party. Why? Oh, geez. I mean, there's just so much going on right now. It's the... It's probably the biggest political story in Canada for the next couple months, at least, until they select their new leader and probably after that as well. It's very fascinating. It's a fascinating time for them and, and for conservative politics in Canada and the United States, obviously. And it's just front of mind for people, I think, right now in Canada. I'm going to just leave it there for a second. Mm-hmm. Well, a few minutes, actually. We're going to come back, have you on in about two segments, because okay. I want to dig in a little bit deeper on some of the stuff that we will have heard. So say bye to Ryan, but he'll be back okay. in a few minutes. All right. Here are some highlights from last weekend's gathering of conservatives at the Manning Centre Conference in Ottawa. You sometimes feel like you've been pushed back into your home. You don't have a role in public life because you're allowed to believe what you believe in your own home, but nowhere else. And do not think for a second you can step outside and, and, and give thought to what you actually believe in. Our party should be a refuge for you. I will save you my long stories of dealing and suffering career-wise from politically correct nonsense from the directions of feminism, gender ideology, trans extremism, and Islamophilia. Do not be intimidated by the name calling. We've all heard it. Racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, Islamophobic, etc., etc. If you self-censor, you are giving ground to the enemies of freedom. I would say it's time for conservatives to stop apologizing for being conservatives. My name is Alexander Walsh. I'm here at the Manning Center Conference 2017, wearing my Donald Trump Make America Great Again hat. Uh, I think that the future of the conservative movement in Canada really needs to be reaching out to especially rural Canadians or people who are outside the sort of Toronto-Ottawa establishment. I think there's been a lot of polarization in recent years between what that establishment or a leader, however you want to call it, in those urban centers have been pushing policy-wise. And I think that reflects on what's been happening in the United States with Donald Trump. You have disenfranchised middle Americans who really made their voices heard in the last election and showed that they could be a powerful political force. I sat down with Preston Manning, the former Reform Party leader, on the sidelines of the conference that bears his name. Okay, well, this is Preston Manning, and I'm at our Manning Center conference in Ottawa. Where do you see the state of the conservative movement right now? Well, I think the overall in Canada, conservatism's sort of in the in the trough side of the political cycle, out of office federally, uh, out of office in seven of the ten uh, provinces, and a minority position on most big municipal councils and uh, university campuses. So there's a need for, uh, I've said here, to rejuvenation intellectually, organizationally, and electorally, federally, and provincially, and municipally. So that's the state of the union. I think the the bigger, broader phenomena right now is these large numbers of people that have become uh, estranged from the political process. They don't like the government, they don't like the parties, they don't like the mainstream media, they don't trust anybody. And I think it's reconnecting with that element, which evidence of which is shown in the rise of the populist parties in Europe, the Brexit thing in the, in the UK, the Trump phenomenon in the United States. So and I think that's the biggest task facing political parties, including the Conservative Party, how to reconnect with that growing number of disenchanted people. 
How do you reconnect with that growing number of disenchanted people? Well, I think you start by listening to them. And if what they say is, uh, is politically incorrect, you don't shut them down. You say, oh, okay, I hear what you're saying. You're obviously angry about it. You're upset about it. Let's get into that. And then uh, I think when you engage in that kind of a discussion, then if you maybe have a different view than what's being expressed, you can say, well, okay, let's look at these alternatives. But when you won't connect with it or say, you can't say that here, let's throw that guy out of the room, I think you just contribute to the phenomena that's uh, created Trump and others. So you try to bring them into the tent? No, I think you go out there outside the tent. You go outside your tent and talk to them there. And then maybe you can bring them in the tent. So how do you reach out to these individuals, try to bring them into the party fold while not alienating the rest of the Canadian population that you're trying to sell your message to? Well, I think, I think first of all, by trying to explain this, this is what this populist phenomena is and in our judgment this is the best way to handle it and that, that way maybe you reassure your more establishment folks like this has to be handled the way it's being done now ignoring them or demeaning them or decrying them that's not working it's feeding the process Michael Chong is the MP for Wellington Halton Hills, and he's a Conservative leadership candidate. Michael, welcome. Thanks for having me. So what is going on with the Conservative Party? Well, I think it's a pretty stark choice in this leadership race. It's really a battle for the soul of the Conservative Party. Mm. It's the first leadership race since the merger, since Mr. Harper left the job. And I think we have a fork in the road. We either play to a narrow vision of the party that plays to fear and place to anti-immigrant sentiment or my vision which is of a much bigger conservative party that includes canadians from all backgrounds is this a leadership race you thought you would be in uh no i never expected it would take a turn to the darker uh, side of canadian politics i never expected that we would have candidates playing to anti-immigrant sentiments i really felt that the party that mr harper uh, Jason Kenney and a number of other people mm -hmm. helped build was a party that included everyone and that the days of being a party that played to anti-immigrant sentiment were over. Um, but cl clearly that's not the case. Can you remain in this party if some of those darker voices, as you call them, win this leadership? Absolutely. This is my party and I'm always going to fight for the party that I believe in, which is a party that has had a long tradition of including minorities, including Canadians of all backgrounds. You know, people forget the Conservative Party traditionally has been the party of minorities, the party of the underdog. Ours was the party that first elected uh, the first African-Canadian, Lincoln Alexander, mm -hmm. from Hamilton, Ontario. He was also the first African-Canadian appointed to the federal cabinet. We were the party that appointed the first woman to cabinet, Ellen Fairclough from Hamilton, Ontario. That was done by John Diefenbaker. We were the first party to give Aboriginal Canadians off-reserve the vote. Also John Diefenbaker, the party of the Bill of Rights, and the party that elected so many minorities for the first time, whether it was the first Canadian of Chinese descent, Douglas Jung, the first Canadian of Japanese descent, Ukrainian descent. So we need to reclaim that tradition and fight against the forces that would take us down an anti-immigrant path. 
But parties can also shift over time, right? I mean, as you mentioned, is a emerged party. And some of the voices we heard in the early days of the Reform Party were not as welcoming, if you wish, um, just kind of like some of the voices that we're hearing now. So, I mean, parties can chart a different course, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it, what you're holding on to is really what's there. Well, I think it's there. I think the fact that we went from being at the back of the pack at the beginning of this campaign to now being in the top tier of candidates demonstrates that there is a lot of that there are a lot of conservatives that support our message. You know, parties go through ebbs and flows, as you pointed out. People forget that the Liberal Party has also had its battles with people who are anti-immigrant. Ernst Sundel ran for the Liberal Party leadership in the 1968 convention. So parties have always attracted people from a broad spectrum, and the Conservative Party is no different. The one thing that struck me um, in several Conservative leadership debates is that you are, uh, well, basically the only leadership contendant that has uh, an environment policy. Um, aside from Mr. O'Brien and Mr. Blaney suggesting that nuclear is the way to go, um, some people are very transparent with the fact that they don't have a plan, like uh, Brad Trost, for example, who says, I don't believe in climate change, so I don't have a plan to fix it. Um, but even those who say they believe in climate change, there is no policy at all on the environment. Does that surprise you? Uh, well, I think the Conservatives over the last 10 years lost the narrative on the environment. So I think we didn't do as good a job as Canadians wanted us to do. But traditionally, Conservatives have been the strongest on environmental issues. If you look at uh, the fa past 150 years, it's Conservatives that have led the conservation movement. Mm -hmm. Theodore Roosevelt was a Republican who massively expanded the American national park system. Johnny MacDonald established our national park system here in Canada. Brian Mulroney was voted the greenest prime minister in Canadian history by environmental groups. Bill Davis established the precursor to the Green Belt, the Niagara Escarpment Commission, and so on and so forth. We lost that narrative. We lost that ground in the last 10 years. I'm in this leadership race to reclaim it. I think that climate change is a serious threat. I think we've got to reduce emissions, and there's a right way to go about it and a wrong way. And to me, the right way to go about it is to use market forces and to use a revenue-neutral carbon tax to reduce those emissions. And increasingly, North American conservatives are coming around to that point of view. Just a couple of days ago, the CEO of the world's largest oil company, ExxonMobil, came forward and advocated for a revenue-neutral carbon tax. Just two weeks ago, in the Wall Street Journal, Reagan Republicans leading uh, members of the Reagan Republican movement, James Baker and George Shultz, wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal calling for a revenue-neutral carbon tax. Conservatives like Mark Cameron, who worked for Prime Minister Stephen Harper in the PMO, are supporting a revenue-neutral carbon tax. That's my approach because it is the most conservative way, the cheapest way, the most economically efficient way to reduce emissions. So you've been making that pitch at every debate. And at many, I haven't been in every debate, but every debate that I have been to, you have been loudly booed. And, you know, God admire your guts for going back and giving the same message over and over again. Um, but is it your sense that the people in the room, therefore, do not represent where the majority of the party is at? I think that's part of it. To be sure, there have been boos, but there have also been some cheers. They're um, a, lot, a, a lot more quiet. They are a lot more quiet, but I think that's also a nature of where the debates have been held. We've had... Uh, two of our four debates held in the two prairie provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan, where there is a lot of resistance to this idea. But, but where the party has a lot of strength. Well, no, the party's votes are 
equally distributed no, across I'm sorry. the country. Sorry, membership. I mean, this is where these are ridings that you consistently win. Yes, that's true. But on the other hand, the leadership race is about winning each riding equally because each riding is given an equal weight. So, um, you know, the voice of Wellington, Halton Hills in rural southwestern Ontario is just as important as the voice of Calgary Centre in downtown Calgary. So when you look at where the debates have been held, they've been traditionally held in the prairie heartland and not in areas like the GTA. And I think that's reflective of the audiences that we're getting at these debates. So I think if you look more broadly at the party, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of receptivity to the idea of a revenue neutral carbon tax. We talked about immigration as being one of the polarizing sort of wedge issues in this campaign, but it struck me this week, especially because we were in Edmonton, um, that there are other sort of more radical policies that are being discussed that no one is really paying that much attention to. Maxime Bernier's policy offerings um, to get rid of uh, corporate welfare, in his words, basically, he acknowledges if that means destroying the aerospace industry, which is heavily subsidized around the world, then so be it. He's going to stand on principle. Rick Peterson's suggestion that corporations should pay 0% uh, income tax uh, is a radical policy. These are bold and these are not sort of red Tory ideas. What does that say to you about what the membership is looking for? Well, I think both Rick Peterson and Maxim Bernier have been constructive about the ideas that they brought forward. Now, I don't agree with a lot of those mm-hmm. ideas, but they've been constructive ideas, ideas that are creating a debate about what our tax policies should be, what our industrial support programs should be. Um, I think a lot of their ideas are are overreaching and won't be popular with the public. And I don't think we can win by eliminating all of the supports for the aerospace industry. I don't think we can win if we eliminate corporate income tax. I think there's a reasonable balance to be struck, which is our income tax rates need to be lowered, our corporate income tax rates need to be lowered in in order to ensure competitiveness with our foreign competition. But we also need to ensure that corporations pay their fair share. I think there's a balance to be struck here. Our campaigns come forward with the largest income tax cut of any of the campaigns, but it's funded through a revenue neutral carbon tax that we don't apply to the oil and gas sector, that we don't apply to the industrial sector. We simply apply it to the consumer side of the economy and in effect works like a consumption-like tax. Mm. And this is the way forward. It's a, it's a way that's smart environmental policy, but it's also smart economic policy. And most importantly, I think it's the kind of policy that will help us win the 2019 election. A lot of people suggested that uh, Stephen Harper governed through a very sort of um, a pragmatic approach to uh, keeping the the coalition that he he and Peter McKay and others had built uh, together, um, and that that allowed for red Tories to find a home. It allowed for social conservatives to find a home. It allowed for some more populist. I find that a loaded term, but for some people who cared more specifically about those issues to find a home. If you do not win, if some of the more middle-of-the-road candidates do not win, what does that say about the red Tory part of that coalition? Well, it says that we're still part of the coalition, but that we've significantly reduced our chances of winning the 2019 election. Look, the Conservative Party needs big change. We need big change in our head office operations, in the leader's office. We also need big change in policy. The reality, the harsh reality facing our party is this, is that over the last 10 years, we have lost two-thirds of our party membership. Where once, 10 years ago, we had some 300,000 party members, we're now down to 90,000 party members. And more importantly, 
uh, many Canadians won't even consider voting for us because they have left our coalition. So we need to grow the party. And that starts with big change in the way we operate and big change in the policies that we present. Do you ever see the party um, breaking up again? No, I don't. I think the danger for our party is not that it breaks up or that it splits into two. I think the party is quite unified. Obviously, there are strong uh, points of disagreement within the party on the policy direction that we need to proceed in. But I think the real risk is not a split in the party. The real risk is that we don't embrace significant change, change in our operations, change in our policies, because that risk means that we continue the status quo, we continue to slowly shrink, and we won't be competitive against the Liberals in the next election. Mr. Manning seemed to suggest that a risk to the party would be from ignoring the populist voices, um, that if we did not, we being the Conservative Party here, did not reach out to these voices and try to bring them into the tent, that they could uh, be harmful to the party and the party's electoral interests, that they would be challenged by these voices that, that felt further excluded from the dialogue. I agree with Preston Manning 100%. It's clear that there is a populist surge in not just Canada, but the United States and in Western Europe, in the UK. We as conservatives have to acknowledge those populist concerns. They're very real concerns from ordinary people about the global economy and how it's not bringing everybody forward. They're very real concerns about immigration and about a rapidly changing society. But there's a constructive way to respond to these concerns and there's a destructive way. The destructive way is to play to people's anti-immigrant sentiments, to play to fear, to play to hate, and that is not the way forward. During this campaign, I've proposed to double the working income tax benefit, which helps low-wage workers and minimum wage workers. It helps people in low-income situations. I've also proposed to enhance the GST credit by $5 billion. These are constructive measures to help people who are falling between the cracks in a rapidly changing economy. I also believe in secure borders. Uh, I believe that our borders need to be secure. I think the recent uh, crossings of illegal migrants uh, are concerning, and I think we need to ensure that our borders are secure in order to ensure the integrity of our system. You mean but, stop them from coming? That's right. I, I think we need to work with the American administration, and we need to make it clear that they can't jump the queue, that they will go through our asylum-seeking process, and that they very well likely will be deported back to the United States because they don't qualify. But at the same time, I've also, I also support Motion 103 because I do think there is anti-Muslim and anti-Islamic discrimination in Canada. It's clear with the shooting at the Quebec City Mosque where 25 people were shot, six dead, 19 injured, that we do have an issue with anti-Muslim discrimination. So I think how we, how we address those populist sentiments is very important. And I think we should address those populist sentiments. But there's a constructive way to do it, which is the way I'm proposing in this leadership campaign. And there's a destructive way to do it. Do you think that we've been unfair to Kelly Leach? Something else that some of the people who were at the Edmonton debate suggested to me was that, you know, what she is offering, uh, screening of new immigrants, of refugees, of visitors, makes perfect logical sense to them that you would want to ensure that the people who come to Canada reflect your values, share your values, and want to uh, engage in Canadian society on that basis. And they feel that the media, especially, has been distorting her message. Do you think the media is being unfair to Kelly Leach? No, I don't feel you've distorted her message for two reasons. 
first the language that she's used and the context in which that language has been used has clearly played to anti-immigrant sentiment. Her campaign manager, uh, former campaign manager who's still involved with her campaign, has used the language of the white supremacist mm-hmm. movement on social media. He has referred to people as cuckservatives. That is the term and language that the white supremacist movement in North America uses. She has also framed this debate in terms of anti-Canadian values and suggested that immigrants coming to this country have anti-Canadian values and therefore they need to be screened for those anti-Canadian values. So I don't think she's been treated unfairly. I think the proof's in the pudding. Two white supremacist groups in this country have come out publicly and endorsed her campaign for leadership, uh, the Council of European Canadians and the Cultural Action Party. Both of these groups are white supremacist groups who have endorsed her campaign. So no, I don't think that she's been treated unfairly. I don't think that that kind of policy, that kind of approach, that kind of language has any place in the Conservative Party of Canada. Is it possible that people are just seeing what they want to see in some of her offering and some of the other candidates' offerings as well? I think leadership candidates need to be responsible in the language in which they use. And when a campaign uses the terms uh, of the white supremacist movement I don't think there's any way you can interpret that other than an appeal to white supremacists. Well, then how can you say that you would still, you know, be part of a party that has her as a leader? I'm confident she's not going to win the leadership because I don't think her views reflect the Conservative Party of Canada or its members. Thank you very much, Michael John. Thank you. There's nothing inherent in saying because you're voting against this motion, therefore you hate Muslims, which is the uh, the track that the liberals want us to be on. But it's not true. It's not fair. What is scary about the word Islamophobia? Uh, I'm not here to debate that. I've, I've already sa- stated my position, which is to vote against the motion. This is Conservative MP Tony Clement. He and I had a chat last week after a large part of the Tory caucus decided to oppose a liberal motion condemning Islamophobia. It would the Conservative caucus be generally voting against a motion that said anti-Semitism? I think we would be amending the motion as we as we did on this motion. Because anti-Semitism is undefined? Uh, look, I, this is over. Have a good podcast, everybody. Okay, Come thanks. on, I mean, you know, come on. So what does all this mean? I'm joined by someone who has studied the Conservative Party and movement in its different forms for years. Bruce Foster is an associate professor at Mount Royal University. Professor Foster, welcome. Thank you, Altio. Um, Well, what do you see happening within the Conservative Party? I think if you ask two Conservatives, you'll get sort of three answers. The party is at a crossroads. It is, it's, being, it's being pushed along in a, in a number of, of different directions. It's being buffeted by what's happening in the United States with the so-called Trump phenomenon and Trumpism. Uh, it's being, as it has been for, for a number of years, it's, it's being pushed along by, by, by Preston Manning and his experience with populism and real 
aligning parties and reuniting the right and so on. Uh, and there's also the traditional party roots, the remnants of the Progressive Conservative Party. Um, so, you know, there are at least three different directions the party is being being pulled in. It does seem, though, that, I mean, we ran, we had, I should say, an election campaign in 2015 that seemed to suggest that the the sort of anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim rhetoric that was coming out of the Conservative Party, whether it was the uh, barbaric practices tip line or the possibility of banning the niqab from the public service, um, that there was uh, a backlash against that. And now it seems that that is what is fueling this new type of populism. I mean, it's not the sort of populism where you were talking about wanting to have power back to the grassroots and recalls and that sort of stuff. It seems to really be about a sort of ethnic anti-immigrant nationalism. Where does that come from? Well, there there are um, there's a long history of that in Canada, uh, in both right and left populism. Uh, this goes back to the uh, the twenties and thirties in Canada. Um, but I would say in its in its more contemporary uh, uh, framework, uh, to some degree, it stems from. Uh, the right populism uh, of Alberta, uh, from my province here, uh, which found its voice in the late 1980s, uh, eventually in the Reform Party, which pushed that right populist idea of, you know, the common sense of the common people. And and Manning is well aware of this. Preston Manning himself was always well aware that if you lift that, if you lift that lid up, uh, in the name of populism, that is to say, to allow those so-called common ideas, this common sense, this common concerns of the common people, uh, mixed in with some probably sensible ideas, are the less than savory ones. And I, I think what we're seeing here in Canada is the, uh, is, is, is the roots of the Reform Party coming back into the current CPC party and its leadership. In light of the the tone of this leadership race, is it possible for the party to return to the gains that it had made with immigrant communities? Is this leadership race doing irreparable damage to the coalition that Mr. Harper had built? That's an excellent question, by the way. I think it will do short-term damage. Uh, let's face it, um, for many decades, the default party... The beneficiary was the Liberals, right? It was under the Liberal Party in, in 1967, under under Lester Pearson and uh, under Pierre Trudeau, that changed immigration to what was, you know, uh, de facto a racist, an exclusionary system to one based on points. Mm. And so the Liberals have always been the beneficiary of what we used to call the ethnic vote. Uh, under Stephen Harper, the Conservative Party did very well, and under Jason Kenney, who was a very effective minister. He's called minister, what, what did they call him, curry in a hurry kind of <laughs> fellow, right? He did very, very well. What we're seeing happening now with some of the members, uh, some of the leadership contenders, particularly Leach, um, will indeed set, set that back. If Leach ever became leader, and I don't think she, I don't think she has a hope in hell of doing that, but one never knows. Um, if Leach became leader, um, you would see, I think, a tremendous loss of support amongst the so-called ethnic communities in, in Canada. 
some degree now, I th I think it's a valid question, Althea, and it may it may you know come to bite them in the behind in 2019. Even if even if somebody like a Kelly Leach did not become leader, the party will to some degree be tainted with that brush because she's still an MP. She's still there. She's still part of that party, and surely there must be others in the party who hold those same those same views. So, um, with regard to attracting the so-called minority vote or the ethnic vote, what's going on now with the leadership race for the Conservative Party is not necessarily good. Notwithstanding the fact that Deepak O'Brien is, you know, gets gets laughs and, and cheers and hand claps more than any other candidate when he's on with the other thirteen folks, right? Mm -hmm. You know, he's a likable fellow, and they all like him. But um, uh, I think this will this will hurt the Conservative Party brand in the future, especially when you're meeting, you know, Mr. Embracing Diversity himself, Justin Trudeau. Pretty hard to, to top what he's doing. Bruce Foster, I have to leave it there. But thank you very, very much for joining us. I really enjoyed this conversation. My pleasure, Altea. So Ryan Maloney, uh, post Canada's senior political editor, is back with us. Um, just to unpack a bit of what we heard. So basically Manning is saying we need to reach out to these populist voices. If we do not, it could be worse, actually. And Bruce Foster is there warning that, you know, this could have a backlash on the Conservative Party, especially were they to elect somebody like Leach. All the gains that they've made with minority communities possibly could be at risk in 2019. But the one thing that struck me from being in Edmonton for a very short period of time uh, this week for the Conservative leadership debate was that Leach speaks to a lot of people and her message, whether a lot of the people I met were not Conservative Party members, but joined because of her. They feel that her message is being distorted, that we in the media are distorting her message and that what she's saying makes complete logical or as I guess populists like to use the word, makes a lot of common sense. This is Lee. Hi, my name's Lee and I'm here in Edmonton at the Conservative Party debate. As far as Kelly Leach goes with her platform and policies on immigration and face-to-face -face screening for Canadian values for potential immigrants and refugees coming into Canada, I do think that it's a policy when you look at it on paper uh, that a lot of Canadians would agree with. It, it seems to have a lot of common sense. Uh, of course, everyone wants to be safe, everyone wants to be secure, everyone wants to know that the people coming into our country want to live in Canada, want to be Canadian, want to embrace Canadian values, Canadian society and Canadian law. So I think on its face a lot of people would agree with that and not think it's extreme. However, I do think that the way it's presented um, in the media is definitely misconstrued. I think there's uh, a agenda, to be honest, in a lot of mainstream media outlets to automatically call anyone who is the least bit critical or hesitant on issues of immigration reform uh, or, you know, allowing migrants or refugees. Uh, as soon as you voice your opinion that you're hesitant or skeptical about that process, um, you're automatically labeled a racist or Islamophobic or a bigot. You're shot down and called uh, all these names because that's the tactic. They want to stop you. They want to shut down the conversation. Um, maybe it's uncomfortable for them to talk about because it's not politically correct. But this is an issue that a lot of Canadians are genuinely concerned about. 
and it is something that we want to hear the Cana the candidates talk about because we love this country, we care about this country, we welcome new people to come here for sure. Uh, we just want to make sure that the people that are coming here are coming here for the right reasons. That's my point of view anyways. What do you think of what Lee had to say? I think it's very interesting. She expresses herself very well, and that might challenge uh, some people's perception of a leech voter or supporter, which is good and interesting. I think I take issue with the idea that it's the media that's distorting what Kelly Leach is proposing because I feel like Kelly Leach has had lots and lots and lots of opportunities to provide specifics to address this and to tackle um, the notion that it is, let's be clear, anti-Muslim. She has not given a speech about diversity, about the contributions that Muslim Canadians make to Canada, for example. Mm. That's her choice, and that's her campaign's choice. We, we have covered this issue, and it's a very sensitive issue. Immigration always is a sensitive issue on both sides, on all sides. And I think Kelly Leach is smart enough to know that. To be fair, I did ask her if she felt that her message was being distorted, and she did not answer the question and instead suggested people go watch her video. Mm -hmm. um, I want to ask you about Maxine Bernier, because while we've spent a lot of time uh, and ink, mm -hmm. I don't know, do we say that on the internet, um, talking about Kelly Leach, yeah. um, one focus that really hasn't had that much attention is really Maxine Bernier's campaign. And he's very frequently in the the top tier or sometimes often actually number one in terms of uh, fundraising and uh, popular support uh, in uh, public opinion surveys. But his his proposal and his policy offering is also quite radical. Um, and, you know, whether it's Alberta populist, I mean, with Maxine Bernie, we mostly talk about a libertarian strain here, but it is also something else tugging at what is happening with the Conservative Party and this um, perhaps a more pragmatic conservatism of Mr. Harper, Stephen Harper, is being lost with a candidate like Maxine Bernier, who says he wants to end all forms of corporate welfare, um, even if that means destroying the aerospace industry in Canada, uh, which would have meant devastating losses to the auto industry, for example, uh, in Ontario, if he had been prime minister uh, back during the recession. Should we be spending more time looking at the policy offerings of actually some of these candidates, not just focusing so much on this uh, immigration issue? Well, I guess what I would start with is that we would like to see more policy, right? I mean, Maxine Bernier spent the whole summer coming out with different policy ideas. And you can agree with them or disagree with them, but they were ideas. And leadership races that are run on ideas are often very interesting, right? It's it's a time for conservatives to think about, you know, what kind of party do we want to be? And to be clear, if Maxine Bernier wins and brings about a platform based around this, it'll be the most conservative platform in, you know, in a long time, maybe Depending ever. What you mean by the conservative? Well, I mean, right wing, uh, free market, uh, smaller government, you know, these types of things, like very overt, uh, big leaps. If, you know, mm -hmm. we're talking about privatizing Canada Post, like, why shouldn't they have a conversation about that as conservatives or the supply management, right? It's not exactly a sexy topic, perhaps, but a big deal. And so he he has impressed people because why shouldn't conservatives who are thinking about renewal have have a thought about principles and philosophies and these types of things? 
So have we covered him enough in terms of his platform and like where he stands? I think we've done a decent job, especially in the summer. He was smart to do it when there was not as many candidates, right? And he had a lot of attention. But yeah, I think there will be a moment where if he wins, people will say, oh, this is an awfully... Radical. Awfully, well... <laughs> radical. I, mean, I don't mean that in a negative sense, but it is it is a radical it's proposal. It's not a vanilla sort of conservatism. And he's it? not the only one. Rick Peterson, for example, is a businessman from right. uh, Vancouver, is proposing zero corporate uh, tax rate with such radical uh, proposals from the leadership candidates. Where does that leave the sort of coalition that Mr. Harper had built with Peter McKay in 2003? What is there room in your mind for red Tories in this new evolution of the Conservative Party? Well, I think that's a really interesting question. If you look at people like Michael Chong and you look at people like uh, Lisa Wright, who are perhaps the clear red Tories in the race. I mean, Kelly Leach was... Even Aaron O'Toole. Oh, yeah, Aaron O'Toole, absolutely. Chris Alexander, perhaps. I think that some of those people would have a hard time running now under Kelly Leach and what she's proposed. I think they would have a hard time, obviously, if a social conservative were to win necessarily. I mean, you look at somebody like Andrew Scheer, who is, who has the support of many social conservatives, but he is sort of considered the most um, Harper-like in the sense that he's palatable to all areas of the coalition, right? Maxime Bernier, I mean, he recently walked back his support of the transgender rights bill, right? Which I thought was an interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's polling data behind that or if it's about principle, I'm not suggesting, but that to me is an, an interesting turn when you consider the red Tories are largely supportive of that piece of legislation, you know? So I think whoever wins, if they want to win government, knows they have to keep, they have to satisfy all aspects of the coalition, which is not an easy thing to do. And I think Harper being out of the picture, you kind of look at how he was able to satisfy he was able to satisfy all those groups and that's not an easy task well we have to leave it there only because we don't want this to be 90 minutes long Ryan thank you very very much for joining us thank you my friend and that's it for this week's edition of Follow Up. Please don't forget to subscribe to Follow Up on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please send me a message on Facebook or Twitter at Althea Raj. I'd love to know what you think of the show, who you want to hear from, and what issues you think we should cover. And a big thanks this week to Stephanie Werner and Zian Lum, who helped produce this show. I'm Althea Raj. Meet you back here in two weeks.